0: For those who know only the name, the history of Newtown, Connecticut begins on December 14, 2012, when a mentally ill man murdered twenty first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Anna Grace was the daughter of Nelba and Jimmy Green.
1: One of the most compelling sermons I've ever heard was given at my daughter's funeral. It talks about Jesus being with us in every season of our lives, and that Anna's death would signify the beginning of a long and hard winter season.
0: Is it springtime yet?
1: I can't imagine a day that it will be spring.
2: How do 50 attorneys handle 22,000 cases? You do your best, but a lot of times you can't provide the kind of representation that the Constitution Our code of ethics and professional standards would have you provide.
3: Derwin Bunton has been head of the New Orleans Public Defender's Office for the last eight years. The 52 lawyers on his staff are responsible for representing more than 20,000 people a year. How many of you believe that an innocent client went to jail because you didn't have enough time to spend on their case? You feel you've all had that experience?
4: One by one, the patches are peeled away, and the world comes back into focus. Yeah. You're witnessing the moment when the people in this room realize they can see for the first time in years. Can you see my fingers? Their eyes and their faces begin to light up with a quiet sort of joy and wonder at the gift of sight.
5: Beautiful.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Doctors Jeff Tabin and Sanduk Ruit are eye surgeons. And now, they are lifesavers.
6: Okay.
0: I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: There is no word in the English language for a parent who has lost a child. Maybe it's an abyss that we can't bear to make real by giving it a name. Bereaved parents feel that life itself lacks definition. What could be next for them? What could be worthwhile? A little over four years ago, we met mothers and fathers who sent their first graders to school one bright morning and have endured the twilight ever since. When we returned to Newtown, Connecticut recently, we found families who will never move on, but are finding ways to move forward. Newtown looks as it did the day before that day. The name is long outdated. It was founded before the Revolution, its flagpole raised after the Civil War, and its town hall erected in the Great Depression. But for those who know only the name, The history of Newtown, Connecticut, begins on December 14th, 2012, when a mentally ill man murdered 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Anna Grace was the daughter of Nelba and Jimmy Green. Have you found people who don't know you, after all these years, expecting you to get over what happened?
1: You just took my breath away, because that happens a lot. And it is so incredibly painful. It's like losing her all over again.
2: There have been those that have said things like, you know, so you guys are good now? Or I hope you've had some closure uh, to your daughter's murder. In, in the back of my heart, and I know in Nelva's as well, it's like our family will never be intact
0: again. Our daughter, Anna, uh, was six years old it was in that town hall four months after the killing that we first met the greens and six other newtown families every day i cry because i miss her so much this is dylan there was nicole hockley
7: i think the the picture kind of sums him up perfectly
0: and we lost our sweet little daniel barden mark and jackie barden daniel was a a light of positive energy in our home
7: Ben
8: was six years old.
0: David and Francine Wheeler.
8: Ben was smart and funny.
0: And our house is very quiet. David Wheeler filled that quiet with a shout to every parent.
5: I would like them to look in the mirror. And that's not, that's not a figure of speech, Scott. I mean, literally, find a mirror in your house and look in it and look in your eyes and
3: say, this will never happen to me. It's going to happen again. It is going to happen again. And every time, you know, it's somebody else's school, it's somebody else's town, it's somebody else's community, until one day
5: you wake up and it's not.
0: That week, several of the families convinced the Connecticut legislature to pass universal background checks and to limit the size of ammunition magazines. Then, they marched on Washington to support a more modest proposal, just closing the loopholes so that all purchases require a background check.
7: I stand before you now and ask you to stand with me.
0: Polls showed most Americans stood with them, and so did the president. Jesse was brutally murdered. They needed 60 votes in the Senate. The yeas are 54, the nays are 46. But not even they could win a gunfight on Capitol Hill.
7: When it was clear that, that they'd lost, it was like all the air went out of your body in one quick swoosh, because that, that gut-wrenching defeat, how could how could this have just happened? Wasn't there
0: a sense after that vote of, OK, we tried, I'm going home?
7: Not no, for me. Never. Why would we do that? That, that? That's not honoring our children. No. There's a saying, you know... Um, fall nine times, get up ten, we'll just keep getting up.
0: So, Nicole Hockley and Mark Barton founded Sandy Hook Promise to train teachers and students how to prevent violence. It was a revelation for Hockley after the FBI told the families that the gunman had been on a predictable path.
7: And I remember asking the question, well, if you know these things about shooters, if you know that these signs and signals are given off, how come... We don't know. And the director said, we just don't have the resources to train everyone in the country. We train law enforcement. We train um, other people, but we can't do it out to the mass public. And for me, that was the moment that I said, well, if you can't, we can. Well, good morning, everyone.
0: Hockley spends half the year on the road visiting schools, telling teachers and students how to spot the signs of social isolation.
7: It's these tiny actions that we can each take that you all have the power to do that are going to change someone else's life.
0: One program called Start With Hello trains students to connect with their peers who are ignored or bullied. So it means so much to us that you're here and that you're doing this. Another is Say Something, which encourages kids to speak up.
7: Listen to the to the
0: program. Take students a, are taught to watch that. for sudden changes in their classmates, a fascination with suicide or death or guns, changes in dress or threats on social media. In 2015, Mark Barden trained students in Cincinnati and shortly thereafter, a middle school student made a bomb threat.
7: And it was overheard by another student who had been trained in our Say Something program.
0: This eighth grade student said, I wouldn't have thought twice about what I saw in social media until I had your training, and I said, this is exactly what they're talking about. It gives me goosebumps just to think about it. I know. It. Sandy Hook Promise says it has trained more than a million students and teachers, but it's had more reach on the internet.
7: Hey, you must be bored.
0: This video, called Evan, shows two students making a connection but harder to spot in the background is what's happening to a troubled young man. So you like to write on desks?
6: Yeah, that's what I do.
0: (laughs) If this program had been in place at Sandy Hook Mm -hmm. Elementary School the day before, do you think it?
7: You read my mind. Sandy Hook was preventable. And had someone been able to see those signs and signals that our shooter gave off throughout his life and connect those dots and make an intervention, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today.
0: A parent who has lost a child has one fear left, the end of remembering. And so many of the families have created projects that introduce their child to new people, Ben Wheeler now lives in the work of Ben's Lighthouse. His mother, Francine, creates service projects for Newtown kids.
8: What a wonderful way to honor him and continue to be his parents.
0: Continue to be his parents.
8: Yeah. I can't live the rest of my life not talking about him. I mean, imagine you having a six-year-old and then you don't anymore. Are you going to stop talking about them? The worst thing you can do to a grieving parent is not to mention the child. Then you're not acknowledging his existence. And so when people do acknowledge it, I'm so appreciative. I say, oh, thank you for it. And even if I'm crying, they're like, I'm sorry I made you cry. I'm like, no, you didn't make me cry. You brought him back.
0: It's like having him back for a minute. Yeah. The Wheelers wanted another child, a sibling for their oldest. And almost two years after Ben was killed, Matthew Bennett Wheeler was born.
2: You try to make the world into the place you want it to be. And many times, the only area
3: that you have any control over is the square footage of your own house. And
2: so you do what you can.
0: David Wheeler is a songwriter, and recently, at a vigil against gun violence,
8: I know you mean.
0: Francine sang. Leave a Light On.
8: You know I'm going to leave. You know I will leave a light on. Because you always look for your home after this kind of craziness that happens to you. Where's your home? And he leaves that light on so that I can have a home in my heart for him.
0: At that vigil, we met Hannah DeVino. Her sister, Rachel, was a therapist in Ben Wheeler's class.
7: She died standing her ground between evil and innocence.
0: Growing up, her big sister had been the strong one in a troubled home. And so, Davino says she lives today in purgatory, not quite the present.
7: A lot of it is because I feel guilty for being alive and happy when my sister's dead.
0: Rachel was your stability.
7: Yes, she was.
0: She really was. You know, I wonder when you hear of the next shooting,
7: Mm
0: -hmm. how does that affect you?
7: I go back to my day one. I go back to 1214, not knowing where my sister was, looking for her. And you see people getting that reuniting hug. And that breaks my heart because I wish I got that hug. And then you see the people that are really distraught because they're in, they're in this club now.
0: Nicole, how would you describe the change in yourself?
7: You couldn't be any more different from the um, confident, optimistic, happy-go-lucky type person I was beforehand.
0: You have poured yourself into this so completely. Yes. Have you given yourself time to grieve?
7: No no um, I'm working on that right now. This is kind of my year that I'm feeling is it's time um, you know to start finding myself again but also to... to accept that no matter what I do, I can't get Dylan back.
0: Jimmy Green summons his daughter's memory through his music. His album about Anna Grace was nominated for two Grammys.
1: I do think this is how we reach kids.
0: Nelba Marquez-Green is a therapist, and she has started the Anna Grace Project to educate teachers about mental health. You mentioned your faith, and I wonder how your faith may have changed in all of this. One
1: of the most compelling sermons I've ever heard was given at my daughter's funeral. It was just a beautiful sermon. It talks about... Jesus being with us in every season of our lives, including the winter. And that Anna's death would signify the beginning of a long and hard winter season. And that winter would be made better with faith and family and friends. And um, I still feel that way. I really do.
0: Is it springtime yet?
1: I can't imagine a day that it will be spring. The moment I'm reunited with her, I want to hear two things. I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I want to hear, hi, Mom.
0: Sandy Hook Elementary School was demolished and rebuilt, much like the families themselves, changed, yet in the same place.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. In the past year, hundreds of people accused of crimes in New Orleans have been stuck in jail, defenseless, denied their constitutional right to a lawyer. It's happening because the city's public defenders, attorneys who are supposed to represent those who can't afford private lawyers, have been staging a kind of protest. They say they're so overworked and underfunded, they don't have the time or resources to defend their clients properly. So they've been refusing to represent people charged with some of the most serious crimes rapes, robberies, and murder. The man who made this startling decision is the chief public defender, Derwin Bunton. He says he didn't have a choice because the criminal justice system in America is so broken. It's become just a criminal processing system.
2: What does that mean, a processing system? Think about I Love Lucy. They have that that famous scene where she and Ethel are trying to wrap chocolates, and their job is to grab the chocolates and wrap them and get them back on the conveyor belt. Our criminal justice system has become something of a conveyor belt that starts with you arrested, and then there's hands that touch you on the way to prison. It is not about... Figuring out at any point your innocence. Should you even be on this conveyor belt no matter what you did? That's a pretty frightening
3: picture you paint. I mean, that's not a justice system. That's a system sending
2: people to prison. And that's what we're fighting to change.
3: Derwin Bunton has been head of the New Orleans Public Defender's Office for the last eight years. The 52 lawyers on his staff are responsible for representing more than 20,000 people a year who are unable to afford a private attorney.
2: How do 50 attorneys handle 22,000 cases? You do your best, but a lot of times you can't provide the kind of representation that the Constitution, our code of ethics, and professional standards would have you provide.
3: It was a year ago in January that Bunton announced his public defenders would no longer take on any felony cases in which defendants were facing a possible life in prison. That left hundreds waiting in jail without lawyers. Isn't having a busy public defender better than languishing in jail
2: without any kind of attorney? No, no. A lawyer poorly resourced can cause irreparable harm to a client. We
3: sat down with nine current and former New Orleans public defenders who all admit they simply do not have the time or the budget to adequately represent all their clients. How many of you believe that an innocent client went to jail because you didn't have enough time to spend on their case? All of you. You feel you've all had that experience.
1: We simply don't have the time. We don't have the money. We don't have the attention to be able to give to every single person.
3: It's not for lack of skill. Sarah Chervinsky went to Yale and won an award for best young trial lawyer in the country.
5: A lot of us went to law schools with good criminal defense you know,
3: clinics. We come into this job being told, like, here's what you do to investigate. Here's how often you visit your client. And... As soon as you start working, you realize the gap between what you should be doing
7: and what you can do.
0: It's unethical. It's unconstitutional. The judges know it. The prosecutors know it. The Bar Association knows it, and it has to come to an end.
3: Stephen Hanlon is general counsel for the National Association for Public Defense. He's just concluded a study in conjunction with the American Bar Association finding Louisiana public defenders are handling nearly five times as much work as they should. Each public defender is doing the work of what five public defenders should do. That's exactly right. Would any other profession be asked to work this kind of a a load?
0: If obstetricians had five times as much work as they could handle competently, if airline pilots had five times as much work as they could handle competently, terrible things would happen. It wouldn't be allowed. I mean, there's strict
3: regulations. Of course it wouldn't be allowed. Public defenders have people's lives in their hands just like airline pilots or doctors.
0: They have people's lives in their hands. Uh, they have people's liberty in their hands. They have their whole future in their hands. Donald Gamble knows what it's like
3: to have your future rest in the hands of a New Orleans public defender. In February 2015, he was out celebrating Mardi Gras in this neighborhood when the police pulled up. The detective, he just jumped out and he was like, uh, Donald Gamble, uh, you're under arrest. And did they tell you what you were under arrest for? Yeah, he said you're under arrest for two
6: counts of armed robbery.
3: A man with a gun stole two women's purses. The robber was recorded fleeing by security cameras, and a witness identified 26-year-old Donald Gamble. His bail was set at $300,000. Unable to afford a private attorney, Gamble was assigned a public defender. Did you have confidence in your public defender? Did you ever feel like, okay, she's really investigating, they're really on it?
6: I never once really felt that she was making progress. I could tell
3: every time I would interact with her, she just seemed busy, rushed. She seemed overworked. Gamble had some prior nonviolent offenses on his record, but now found himself facing possible life in prison. Even so, court records show that for more than 10 months, his case went nowhere. Gamble was locked up in a jail that was recently cited by the Department of Justice for its violence and inhumane conditions. Did you have problems in jail?
6: Yes. What happened? As you can see, I've got my front teeth knocked out, and I've had stitches. So
3: you got attacked more than once? Absolutely, yeah. To protect himself, he says he got a homemade knife, which was confiscated by authorities. Lindsay Samuel was Gamble's public defender. She told us she couldn't spend much time on his case because she was already struggling to represent nearly 100 men facing life in prison. Nearly a year after Donald Gamble was arrested, Samuel quit her job. Why'd you leave?
7: You know, feeling like you're always coming up short. Um, You know, the first 1,000 clients, you feel terrible. The second 1,000 clients, you feel awful. The third thousand, three thousand in, it doesn't feel so bad anymore. One morning I woke up and I just felt like, I'm not even angry about this anymore. It's just every day to me. Every day my clients are going away for a decade. And I just move along to the next client.
3: Samuel left just as the public defender's office started refusing cases. That meant Donald Gamble, stuck in jail, had no one representing him. But surprisingly, that turned out to be a good thing. A judge appointed Pamela Metzger, a constitutional scholar and Tulane law professor, to advise him and six other men on their Sixth Amendment right to legal counsel. Metzger argued that if the state couldn't provide the men with effective representation, they should all be released immediately. Some of these men were charged with very serious crimes.
9: Rape, murder, armed robbery.
3: You live in New Orleans? You have a family here? Yep. Do you want them back on the street?
9: I want to live in a city where the Constitution matters, and I want to live in a city where everybody knows that if you get arrested, you're going to have a lawyer, and you're going to have a lawyer who represents you properly.
3: Pamela Metzger's job wasn't to disprove the charges against Donald Gamble, but as soon as she started looking at the case file, she says she realized the eyewitness who identified Gamble was unreliable. Then she took the time to examine those security camera recordings of the robber. When she studied them closely... She realized Gamble didn't fit the description at all.
9: I noticed the pants, and there's a flat, wide cuff to the pant. Mm -hmm. The pant cuffs are swinging as this person runs.
3: These are the pants police said Donald Gamble was wearing during the robbery. These are tight on the bottom.
9: These are old-school sweatpants that are elasticized bottoms. See right there, Mm -hmm. that straight line? Right. It's impossible for those pants to have made that. As soon as you saw that,
3: you knew. As soon as I saw that, I knew. How many hours did it take you to determine they had the wrong guy?
9: I would say put together four or five hours of work.
3: If a public defender has too many cases, has too big a workload.
9: They don't have four to five hours. They don't. They don't have four to five hours.
3: Days after reviewing the case, Pamela Metzger presented the evidence, including the security camera videos, to the judge.
9: I got a call at home that night from the district attorney saying we're dropping it and the paperwork was filed the next day.
3: Last June, after 16 months in jail, Donald Gamble was freed. He left for Houston immediately to live with his grandmother.
6: Good to see you. you, look so good. You do too, you look baby. So good. Yeah, you
3: look good. good. You looking young, girl. Back at home, there was relief and disbelief.
6: See, I got my teeth knocked out.
5: It's pathetic.
3: You'll be all right.
5: It's time for you to have some
3: good luck. Mm -hmm. To someone watching who says, look, it's unfortunate that some innocent people end up in jail, but no system's perfect, and it's the cost of doing business to keep people safe.
9: We didn't keep people safe. We put Donald Gamble in jail, the wrong man, and let the actual robber out on the streets for 16 more months. Who knows how many other people he robbed? The cost of not having a good public defender is not just to the defendant. It's to the victims, and it's to all the future victims.
3: Gamble, who was arrested again last month for disturbing the peace, had always insisted he was innocent of the robbery, but told us he was so scared in jail, he considered pleading guilty. You were facing, potentially, life in prison. Yes. If your attorney had been able to get a, a plea bargain for, say, five years, would you have taken it?
7: Absolutely. If you ask yourself that same question, would you rather... Five years or 99 years.
3: You would have pled guilty to something you didn't do?
7: Most definitely.
3: That doesn't surprise Derwin Bunton, the city's chief public defender. He says their clients know they don't have the time and money to mount a rigorous defense at trial, so often decide to take plea deals even if they aren't guilty. People are pleading guilty to crimes they
2: didn't do all the time all the time this is not just an isolated thing here and there this is not isolated this is a system that has grown so large without any counterbalance that it has produced the highest incarceration rate in the world and you're supposed to be that counterbalance
3: that's exactly right to illustrate his point bunton took us to this warehouse where the public defenders cases from the past decade are stored about how
2: many cases are there here it's roughly about half a million and how many pled guilty You're probably looking at somewhere between 90, 95%. 95% of these people were guilty. Well, they pled guilty.
3: I think people haven't been in the system find the notion that somebody would plead guilty to
2: something in a plea deal that they didn't actually do. Hard to imagine. Say you're, you're picked up for something you didn't do and you're placed in jail. Jail is a terrible place to be. And you find out through your public defender that if you plea to this, maybe it's this lesser thing, maybe it's guilty as charged, you'll get out today, people will take that plea because they want to get out of jail. But
3: plea deals, Bunton says, often lead
2: to serious consequences when someone has a criminal record. Louisiana is a state that has a lot of misdemeanor multiples, as we call them. That means if you get one misdemeanor is the misdemeanor, a second one turns it into a felony.
3: So if you're arrested on a misdemeanor, and then a couple of months later it happens again, that
2: becomes a felony? That's right. The second time, it's a felony. And the penalties increase for each subsequent time that you're caught.
3: These public defenders say they see harsh sentences based on prior felonies and misdemeanors all the time. I had a client who's doing 20 years for stealing a flat of soda that was worth less than $100. I have a client that was sentenced to 17 years. For half an ounce of weed. No crimes of violence in his past. In recent months, the public defender's office here has gotten some relief. The state of Louisiana and the city of New Orleans have come up with more money, and Derwin Bunton has hired nine additional attorneys. But he insists he'll continue to turn away cases until he can
2: ensure every client gets the defense they deserve. Here we have a criminal justice system, stories of innocence, throughout and profound and we still haven't had the urgency that i think we need to reform it so that we don't destroy lives. because make no mistake we're destroying lives and you don't want to be part of it anymore we're not going to be complicit in that kind of injustice no we're not going to do it anymore
3: To play it, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
4: Blindness and partial blindness are not epidemic here in the U.S., but they are in certain parts of the world. Our story is about two doctors who decided to do something about it, and incredibly to date, they have restored sight to more than 150,000 people. Doctors they've trained have restored sight to 4 million more. Their partnership seems improbable. One is a hard-charging Ivy League American adrenaline junkie. The other, a serene Buddhist surgeon from the remote mountains of Nepal. We join them on one of their most challenging missions in the isolated country of Burma. Their goal? To lead Burma out of darkness one patient at a time. One by one, the patches are peeled away and the world comes back into focus. You're witnessing the moment when the people in this room realize they can see for the first time in years. Can you see my fingers?
5: Their eyes and their
4: faces begin to light up with a quiet sort of joy and wonder at the gift of sight. As they look around, they see who changed their world with an operation the day before that took just minutes. Doctors Jeff Tabin and Sanduk Ruit are eye surgeons, and now they are lifesavers. To hear doctors Ruit and Tabin speak, they are the beneficiaries. What's it like when that bandage is taken off Mm -hmm. and
6: that person sees for the first time, sees you? I may have seen it thousands of times, but every time there's a new tickle there. And uh, I I feel like my battery is being recharged.
5: I still get such a thrill when people don't expect or realize they're going to have their sight restored. And then the transformation when they see and the sort of moment of hesitation. Mm -hmm. What are they seeing? And
4: and then the smile. Good. Ah. (laughs) Ooh Mint Ooh hadn't seen for two years until this moment.
5: Thank you, thank you. You're welcome.
4: Others here had been blind for decades, They all had cataracts, a milky white buildup of protein that clouds the lens of the eye. In the U.S., they mainly afflict the elderly, removing them, a routine operation. But here in Burma, also known as Myanmar, cataracts go untreated, and blindness is a way of life.
5: It's a Buddhist population. They're very fatalistic. They're very accepting. And there's almost an acceptance that you get old, your hair turns white, your eye turns white, and then you die. And the idea that you can actually have your sight restored has not really permeated all levels of uh, Myanmar society. What does that tell you about the state of eye care here? Well, it's a place we can make a difference.
4: Burma is one of the poorest countries in Asia, slowly emerging from the darkness of decades of dictatorship. After years of trying, Tabin and Ruit finally were permitted to bring their treatment here. We met them in Tanji, in central Burma, where the lack of care has led to some of the highest rates of cataracts in the world. Through radio and pamphlets and conversation, word of the doctor's visit spread. Hundreds of Burmese who'd lost their sight found their way to Tanji's hospital with the help of caregivers, many trekking for days. Here, cataracts are not just a malady of old age. They take the sight of the very young, too, caused by infections and malnutrition. I think it's better to redo it. By the time the doctors scrubbed in, the corridors were choked with people hoping to have their sight restored. Is it ever daunting? I mean, you look out there and you see that line of people, Um, all who need this surgery. It's
6: daunting
5: on a worldwide basis. There may be a long line, but this individual person, I'm going to give the very best care I can.
4: Dr. Ruit set a rapid pace. He repaired an eye, the patient got up, the next patient was ready on an adjoining table. Just minutes an eye, then on to the next. Hey, Cam, are they both blocked? Dr. Tabin performed the delicate surgery just feet away.
5: Want to take a look? See how nice and clear that is? I don't know what that was, maybe four or five minutes? And it's going from total blindness oh, wow. to great vision.
4: Wow. They kept up this pace until 7 in the evening. It's almost like an assembly line. Yeah. But mm-hmm. assembly line sounds too mechanical. I mean, this mm-hmm. is people's eyes.
5: You're well, dealing people's with people's lives. Mm-hmm. Now, once someone goes blind in the developing mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. their life expectancy is about one third that of age and health match mm-hmm. peers. And for a blind child, the life expectancy is five years. And also in the developing world, it takes often a person out of the workforce or a child out of school to care for the blind person. So when we restore sight to a blind person, we're freeing up their family and restoring their life.
4: Among the throng waiting to have their lives restored, we found (laughs) Kanchi. Her son, a farmer, had been her eyes and devoted caretaker since cataracts took her sight. Fifteen-year-old Yanu had been blind since age seven. He was overwhelmed but grateful. Thank you, he said. Doctors Ruit and Tabin heard that a lot. In four days in Tanji, with the help of local doctors they were training, they performed 503 cataract surgeries her eyes now bandaged, Kanchi waited
6: with her son.
4: we were going to be performing as many cataract surgeries
6: yeah. as the they hospital normally
4: do. does normally in a year. Yeah.
6: No, we are basically here to ignite fire. Ignite fire of the possibility of doing high-quality, high-volume cataract surgery. It is still possible. You and want to the, ignite a fire ignite here? Ignite a fire here.
4: As long as he can remember... Sanduk Ruit has been burning to change the world around him. He grew up desperately poor in this village, with no electricity or running water high in the Himalayas of Nepal. The nearest school was a 15-day walk away. Ruit's illiterate parents saw education as the way out for their children, but the grip of poverty and poor health was too strong to escape. His younger sister, with whom he was very close, died of tuberculosis.
6: I saw her pass away in front of me. And uh, uh, then uh, there's a very strong determination from inside uh, that maybe this is the profession that I should take and make health care available for my countrymen.
4: That determination took him to medical school in India, He came back to Nepal, an eye doctor, committed to bringing modern care to remote mountain villages. The documentary, Out of the Darkness, showed them carrying equipment on their backs. His team hiked for days. His goal? As revolutionary as it was simple to cure blindness in the third world with a quick, cheap technique to remove cataracts. Could you translate? Soon, the medical world took notice, and so did a young Jeff Taven. I imposed
5: myself on Sandak and, uh, and came to, uh, to work in Nepal. What did you think of him when he first showed up? You know,
6: I was a bit scared in the beginning, you know. He had tremendous energy. He would never get tired. Energy in working, energy and eating, energy and drinking, <laughs> energy and talking, you know. It was like being hit by a human avalanche.
4: Fitting, since Jeff Tabin's passion was mountaineering, more than medicine. He'd raced through Yale, Oxford, and Harvard Medical School. But he had made his name as one of the first people to climb the highest peak on every continent. He met Dr. Ruit and thought he'd found his next challenge. Ruit was skeptical. This frenetic young man had the same dedication to ophthalmology he had to adventure.
6: I sent him to a hospital in eastern part of Nepal uh, in the middle of summer, and I said he's not going to survive there.
5: During the summer in the monsoon, it's quite oppressive. It's sort of 100 degrees, 105, with 99% humidity and lots of mosquitoes wait a minute you sent him to a, a, a difficult place a difficult on
6: place. purpose difficult definitely yeah, yeah. did you yeah. know
5: that he was testing you no i thought he sent me there because there was so much need i scratched my mosquito bites and and was excited to go to work that there were all of these blind people that you know i could make a difference in their life he he
6: won you over yes yes definitely
4: their relationship has grown, from teacher-student to collaborators and friends. Like Yin and Yang, these opposites complement each other. They created the Himalayan Cataract Project, started here at Tilganga, Ruit's Hospital in Kathmandu. They perfected the procedure called small incision cataract surgery. Just one small splice, the cataract comes out, a new man-made lens goes in, no stitches required. It's quick and costs about $20. How does the quality of care you're providing here compare to the quality of care you'd be able to provide for these in the advanced
5: US? cataracts? I'm performing the same quality of surgery that I would be doing in America.
4: Dr. Tabin spends most of his year at the University of Utah, where cataract surgery costs a couple thousand dollars an eye. He might do four or five a day.
5: When I and when I
4: Here, he does that many in a half hour, removing cataracts he'd never see in the U.S. because they'd never go untreated so long. Their project is funded by donations and grants. They're able to keep costs down because they don't use expensive equipment, and they make their own lenses at their factory in Nepal. The lenses are crucial to the process. They're a permanent implant. Each costs about $4. In the U.S., because of strict safety requirements, they can cost 50 times more.
6: Comparable quality? Very comparable. I put that in my mother's eyes.
4: So far, they've operated in two dozen countries, including North Korea, Ethiopia, and now Burma. So tell me what you think of this. Okay, no. They've brought hundreds of doctors, including the Burmese doctors working with them, to Tilganga for training. And everywhere they go, they train other doctors to carry on their work once they've moved on. How many fingers? Five. Fingers. Yeah. We saw yeah. the immediate benefit the morning after surgery. How many? One. The patients gathered in a Buddhist monastery.
9: Oh, uh,
2: it yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: As the bandages came off, first wonder, then smiles and celebration.
5: Uh-huh.
4: Remember Ooh Mint U, blind for two years? His family sent us this picture. He can read again his favorite pastime. <laughs> Fifteen-year-old Yanu, blind half his life, seemed somewhat bewildered by this new world of sight. Uh,
5: you saw
6: his son now.
4: For Kanchi, the wait was over. <laughs> Her son was overcome when she saw his face for the first time in years. Then there was this woman. This is the first time she's been able to see in months? Yes, sir. She called doctors Ruit and Tabin gods. They assured her they are not. But in this room, it certainly seemed they had performed miracles.
5: (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
4: Hallelujah. The doctors recently got more good news. The Himalayan Cataract Project is one of eight semi-finalists for a $100 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation.
0: Last Sunday, Palm Sunday, marked the beginning of Holy Week for most of the world's Christians, including Egypt's ancient Coptic minority. ISIS marked the day by bombing two Coptic churches, killing 45 worshipers. Rather than the tragedy and violence of this past week, on this Easter Sunday, we want to recall the beauty and the richness of the Coptic tradition, as reported by our late colleague Bob Simon in 2013. The Copts developed a religious culture that's distinctly Egyptian, everything from music to art to some of the most magnificent churches of the early Christian era. Scholars have called the Red Monastery the Coptic Sistine Chapel. Its walls are covered with paintings of the church's prophets, saints, and martyrs. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.